Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. There's this pizza joint in DC where a cabal of satanic child abusers meets to brag about their exploits. The menu cards are in fact coded lists of available children. You choose. The initials of cheese pizza, CP, for example, means child pornography. High-profile Democrats, including the Clintons, are regulars. During his presidency, Donald Trump got wind of this and as part of his plan to drain the swamp, earmarked a day of mass arrests and executions, which he nicknamed the Storm. Got the picture? Pizzagate morphed into QAnon and came close to becoming a mainstream proposition for conspiracy-obsessed radio jocks in the USA. It almost beggars belief. But we've enlisted two guests who can throw some light on that most agrarious of conspiracy theories, QAnon, our subject for this week's podcast. Dr. Ruth Lawler is a junior research fellow at Queen's College, Cambridge, and a specialist in modern American history. Ruth was last on Naked Reflections just before the storming of the Capitol in 2021. And welcome back, Dr. Alfred Moore, senior lecturer in politics at York University. Alfred worked on the Leverhulme Trust Project, Conspiracy and Democracy, History, Political Theory, and the Internet. So how did it all get started? On the Naked Scientist show, Our Search for Extraterrestrials, Dallas Campbell took a generous view of the origins of conspiracy theories. As long as human beings have been roaming the earth, there's been conspiracy theories. Point is, I think we all are conspiracy theorists, just to various different degrees. We all have probably irrational beliefs that we justify in the secret ways that we justify beliefs. Alfred, is QAnon just another conspiracy theory, or is it unusual even for the world of conspiracists? That's a good question. I mean, it is clearly part of a long tradition of conspiratorial thinking. So, I mean, if you think in the America in the post-war period, one of the classic sort of early observers of conspiracy theories or early critics was Richard Hofstadter, the historian. And he suggested that the kind of conspiracy theory, as we would call it, what he called the paranoid style, was something that periodically manifested throughout American history. And so he looked at conspiracy theories about the Jesuits and conspiracy theories about slaveholders, all of these kinds of things running up to the John Birch movement and Joseph McCarthy. And you can see a continuity in, let's say, some of the three key features of his paranoid style. One of them is a fact that it's a kind of style of explanation that rejects contingency in human affairs. Nothing is accidental. Everything has some significance or meaning. The people in power are not just clueless, making mistakes or blundering. There's organization at some deep level in human affairs. The second point is that conspiracy theories often have what Hofstadter called a kind of pedantic quality. Right? They're obsessed with looking for clues and evidence, sometimes in a kind of pseudoscientific kind of way. They try to sort of style themselves as making sense of the world. And the third feature that Hofstadter pointed out was that they're characterized by a Manichaean dualism, a conviction that the world is guided by good and evil, this simple kind of moral division. 
So in a sense, you can clearly see QAnon as continuous with a quite long tradition of radical, paranoid suspicion. I think this is exactly spot on, and Hofstadter is a great person to do this kind of explaining for us. Two things that are interesting with respect to QAnon in terms of their difference and similarity with past conspiratorial thinking. The first is that QAnon strikes me as a really postmodern phenomenon. It's deeply embedded in online discourse where the idea of truth is somewhat relative, such that claims about fact are difficult to substantiate, and it traffics in a great deal of irony and disavowal, which makes them both very hard to pin down in terms of their claims, but endlessly self-referential. So this also has the effect of creating in-groups and out-groups that contributes to the evangelical fervor that QAnon also displays. But the second aspect is that the QAnon phenomenon has rolled off a number of common themes in historical conspiracies, including, for example, the references to pedophilia, sex trafficking, a global shadowy elite or a cabal, are particularly anti-Semitic dog whistles that have echoes in terms of an old document called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a right-wing Russian czarist document proclaiming to find evidence of a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. And that was disseminated widely in the United States in the 1920s, at least in part by Henry Ford, a car manufacturer. And those claims about pedophilia are, are really central to historic white supremacism and anti-Semitism. And other themes to do with child abduction or the sort of racial and gendered obsession of QAnon and other far-right figures certainly taps into the child abduction or stranger danger panics of the 1980s in the United States and the satanic panics of that period as well, all of which historians have said were racially coded and contributed to mass incarceration in the United States today. The importance of the sort of fears around sexuality is again a kind of, as we said, a strong connection to older manifestations of conspiracy theory. And I was thinking particularly when she was talking of the hysteria around homosexuality that accompanied the Red Scare in the 1950s. So there are sort of profound fears around sexuality that are running through some of these styles of thought. I would also sort of second the point about the peculiarity of the role of the internet, and particularly internet culture in the emergence of this kind of conspiracy theory, particularly its emergence on the kind of deeply anonymous forums of 4chan, which are characterized by these deep levels of irony and of trolling and of indeed game-playing, right? So one recent analysis of QAnon that I saw emphasized the way that it's almost constructed as though it's something that people can play along with. It's got clues, it's got these drops, it's got these little sort of bits of information that people can work with and claim some agency and ownership of. So it's being involved like a real live clues, puzzle-solving sort of game. And clearly the propagation of it is in distinctive internet subcultures, and it's obviously burst out into the mainstream, but it roots in the peculiar subcultures of contemporary internet culture are also really important to what's distinctive about it. What I think you're saying is there's nothing new. It's just that we live in a slightly different environment, a postmodern internet age, which is the context for QAnon at the moment. Is that fair? I think yes. I mean, as with many things, you know, there are continuities and there are distinct features of how it's manifesting now and distinct affordances in the information environment. There are clearly sort of some distinct things that make this a very 21st century phenomenon, but some of the themes and the style are clearly continuous with older kinds of radical conspiratorial suspicion. Ruth, to what extent do you think QAnon is a specifically American phenomenon? And it's clearly extended beyond that. But on the one hand, there are these old tropes. You mentioned the protocols of the elders of Zion, old tropes about sexuality, abuse, and so on. 
And yet on the other, there seem to be new aspects to it. How global is it? Is it American? Is it global? What are we dealing with here? It's a good question because the roots of the anti-Semitism that we were talking about have European origins and many of the anti-Semitic texts that have circulated in the United States originated in Europe. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, for example, after being circulated in the United States, then made its way back to Germany again in the 1920s. Um, and we can all understand what the consequences of that type of circulation of ideas might be. The context of that circulation in the United States was the first Red Scare. So Alfred had talked to us about the second Red Scare in the 1950s with the rise of the Cold War. In the 1920s, in the US, in the aftermath of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, the first anti-communist fervor arose. It was not only anti-Semitic, but deeply racist and fueled a very severe immigration restriction in the United States that lasted from 1924 until 1965 and enabled the flourishing of new forms of specifically American white supremacism, I suppose, that also had a deeply anti-black racism embedded within it. And the US, through its imperial ventures, through war making, through its cultural empire, has been able to export some of those ideas and also make them chime with older forms of, say, European racism and, and the legacies of colonialism. And so if I could give you one example, many of the uh, QAnoners have made these awfully racist claims that Michelle Obama is not, in fact, a woman, that she's a man and that the children that she and Barack Obama have are not theirs. And that taps into a very deep history of the denial of femininity to black women. That's a legacy of the enslavement and sexual violence committed against black women during that time. So these are older tropes that come from an American context, but then can be easily embedded or absorbed into local forms of racism or anti-statism. It's also worth saying, of course, that suspicion of the state is a very long-standing American tradition. And so it taps into that element as well. And suspicion of the other, of course, taps into the human condition. We are in many ways naturally suspicious, particularly when it comes, you know, we're us and you lot are they. Alfred, is there a sense that the momentum behind QAnon is declining or am I being <laughs> too hopeful? I don't know about declining, but I mean, I think we can take some reassurance from some systematic political science studies of the QAnon phenomenon that have recently been published, which essentially established that it's pretty marginal and that it's pretty stable. What they looked at was they ran some opinion polls over a three-year period nationally in the United States and in the state of Florida and found about 20% of all of their respondents declaring some approval or expressing approval of this QAnon conspiracy theory. And that sort of sounds like a lot, but it's actually not that much. And they find that it's quite stable. They also found that it was located largely at ideological extremes, like it wasn't an exclusively right-wing phenomenon. So what we hear in the popular sort of culture around this are striking anecdotes, very attention-grabbing claims, but not really a great sense of how widely shared these are, who actually believes it, what they're actually doing with it. You know, So there's clearly a lot more sort of research to be done on this kind of thing. But what's been done so far suggests that, well, the anecdotal fears we have of this being some major shared belief system that's driving large-scale political changes is probably not what's going on. It's probably more marginal than that. 20% seems a lot, Ruth. Yeah, the Daily Beast journalist Will Sommer, who's been following QAnon for a long time, estimated that between 10 and 30% of the Republican base believes in the QAnon conspiracy theory. And a YouGov poll conducted last December found that 71% of US Republican voters believes that Joe Biden didn't legitimately win the election. But as to what Alfred was saying, what does that amount to is hard to tell because 
QAnon is not an organized phenomenon, unlike some of the other groups that we saw at the January 6th Capitol riots. They're not centrally organized. It's a belief system more than a sort of defined group with membership. People are in the movement for a variety of different reasons. It does bring together these strange elements from across the political spectrum. So if you remember the Q shaman figure um, dressed in animal clothing at the Capitol riots, he's sort of a vegan environmentalist, but also a white nationalist. It's hard to pin down what exactly the sort of common denominator always is amongst this somewhat disparate group. I think the key thing is we need to keep an eye on 2024 because the sort of great reckoning that was supposed to take place, the storm during the inauguration of Joe Biden didn't happen. So there was a momentary setback for QAnon, but the focus is now on whether Trump will run again in 2024. And for me, the big question is always, what are they allowing themselves to do? That's a good question about conspiracy theories. Sometimes there are elements of truth in terms of identifying state power, doing nefarious things. But to what end is that information put and why does it focus on some targets rather than others? We're going to touch on the question of fragments of truth in the second half. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Ruth Lawler and Alfred Moore, and we're discussing QAnon. That's our story anyway. On the Naked Reflections show, Reflecting on Communication, Ed Williams raised the alarmingly widely held notion that the Democrats cannot win an American election without resorting to fraud. Now, you might think that was, you know, the pipework for that was laid by Donald Trump a few years ago. It wasn't. That started in 1986. That was when the Republicans started to lay the ground for a meme, a trope, a belief. Actually, 65% of Republicans believe that Biden didn't legitimately win. Okay, so it does have a real world impact. That was when they started to lay the groundwork for this notion that the Democrats can only win with election fraud. I think we've got to call out the big lies. And I think we've got to get better at spotting the pipework being laid for future big lies. Ruth, there are sometimes fragments of truth embedded in conspiracies, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. I think conspiracy theories gain their power and their ability to circulate ideas widely because they can present some element of truth that chimes with people who are feeling dissatisfied for particular reasons or who are suspicious of power for a wide variety of reasons. The interesting question is why some gain traction and others don't, and to what end those ideas are put. So it's interesting, for example, that the Kennedy-Nixon election has a lot of purchase on the right, but not the Gore v. Bush election, which is also known to have had significant irregularities, but which don't allow the right, I suppose, to acquire the kind of power that they see. At the heart of Pizzagate is this outlandish story about a ring of pedophiles. QAnon has also shown a great deal of interest in the story of Jeffrey Epstein and his group of elite celebrity friends and others, including the Clintons and many famous actors who spent time with him. And we know that there's evidence there of trafficking and sexual abuse. But the QAnoners are very conveniently leaving Trump out of that discussion, even though we know that he was also present during some of these encounters. When the child sex abuse scandals really hit the news, particularly in the 1980s and the 1990s, that was at a time when we were beginning to learn much more about the fact that child sexual abuse was a very prevalent problem in our society. What this kind of far-right conspiracy theory does, I think, is allow those on the right to externalize that problem, right? to say that it's on the part of strangers, children get abducted off the streets, but not to focus on institutions of power that might need to be challenged, right? the church, those who are extremely wealthy, billionaires, um, politicians who aren't accountable because many white nationalists and middle-class people themselves are invested in those very same structures. So they don't want to have to challenge those ones. So it's a convenient political vehicle, I would say. 
it's a kind of selectivity, isn't it? You pick and choose which ones you want. I'd like to take the issue of QAnon back to a much earlier time, because the propagation of misinformation on a massive scale can be traced back to the Bible, can't it? I mean, it's not just a postmodern 21st century phenomenon. Alfred? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true, it seems to me. And if we just take misinformation to mean giving someone false or inaccurate information with the intention of deceiving them, then it's a perpetual feature of human societies. I think there is a case to be made that there are distinct differences today in terms of the scale, the kind of problem that people face, the problem of a flood of information, which shifts the position of the consumer of information to a kind of attention problem. And you have a dynamics of attention grabbing that's going on. Can I push back on that, Alfred? Because yes, you're right that there's a technological difference because of the dissemination of information. But is it so very different from woodcuts in the sort of early medieval period or the creation of the printing press in the 16th century? Is it so very different? Broadly speaking, I think you can identify continuities. And at a sort of secondary level, I think you can also identify continuities in the kinds of anxieties and fears that new technologies of communication have elicited. You can find very similar anxieties about the effect of the printing presses, as you can find now about the emergence of the internet. And I'm generally of a view that the kind of heated anxieties tend to be a bit overblown. But I do think that it makes sense to at least think about the differences as well as the continuities. There are clearly a lot of generic high-level similarities in the motive for spreading disinformation. But when we think about our particular contingent historical situation, we have to look carefully at the manifestations as they are before us, what exactly the problem that we're dealing with today is. And it probably has a different sort of shape simply because of the global reach of communication technologies, the speed, the scale, and to some degree, the automaticity. Maybe, Ruth, we need to apply the sort of scientific dispassionate rigour to the study. Is there something about deploying scientific method in our reception of general information and theories? As a historian, I'm not so certain about that kind of approach, not because there's not some value in in ideas about skepticism or objectivity. It is just the case that truth is a difficult concept to grasp, that different kinds of truths exist for different people, and that truths themselves are historically and socially and culturally embedded. So they come from a certain place, which is why it's very difficult, I think, to identify information or misinformation as the problem. And my instinct is to look less to, even though I think Alfred is absolutely right that the global scale of communications today makes a difference, and so too does this speed, the ability to reproduce, to replicate, and to embed layers of meaning in what's called meme culture, so different icons and images that then serve as sort of secret codes to those who are in the know or the people who we sometimes refer to as being terminally online. But the key thing that might have changed, I think, is in the social and and economic circumstances of places like the United States that fuel the desire to express these ideas. Because in a society that was more equal or that had less, I would say, reactionary politics, and the instinct to express one's distrust of the state would not take such racialized and gendered forms. The solutions then are both in terms of regulation of giant corporations that are able to monopolize uh, speech in particular kinds of ways, but it also means tackling the policies that produce racial hatred. Michael Flynn, a former national security advisor who's at the heart of the QAnon conspiracy and deeply embedded in this movement, it seems very clear that he was radicalized by his experience in the war on terror, that the level of racial hatred that he espouses comes from that context. 
I don't think regulating the information will be the solution. We have to look at the social factors. So social economic factors, Alfred, fundamental divisions in society, that's what fosters conspiracy theories. But yet, when I look in other parts of the world and friends of mine from the subcontinent, very keen on conspiracy theories there in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, it's almost part of the culture, from what I understand. Is there an aspect of conspiracy theories and QAnon that's just it's part of the human condition rather than being motivated by social economic division? I'm sort of wary of large scale structural explanations as though conspiratorial suspicion will follow some particular sort of general social experience of disempowerment. We can always find counterexamples, times in which socioeconomic distress has not manifested in a profound suspicion of the other. I think also we should be wary of looking for sort of universal stories or explanations that cut across different cultural contexts. So there will be a different national and cultural story to the conspiratorial suspicions of a country like Iran, for example, which are always fixated on the hidden hand of the British. There'll be a very particular story there. We're right to look for some sorts of common cultural features or the use and repetition of cultural tropes and repertoires. And we're right to bring in some level of structural explanation. I think one thing that's sometimes missing is leadership. This is where I do share exactly the views that causes and cures are not to be located in misinformation per se or in structures of information. But I'd say questions of leadership are actually hugely important and possibly underestimated as ways in which certain sorts of experiences are channeled and directed. And that's where it's precisely dangerous. You have certain kinds of leadership directing those suspicions in a profoundly unproductive way. Leadership, Ruth, brings us a little bit, I suppose, to the question of top down, bottom up. And QAnon is, of course, anonymous, right? QAnon. So where do you see that? It is a useful question because in some senses, QAnon as a kind of inchoate or disjointed movement is a movement in search of both a cause and a leader. So Q has to stop posting. There's good evidence that we now know who Q is or was. The documentary director, Colin Hoback, presented in a recent documentary a very good case that Q was Ron Watkins, who is the son of the owner of 8chan, one of the message boards where much of the original incitement was taking place during the Trump presidency. He was never a leader in his real personality. You know, it was who he said to represent that seems like a godlike leader because he was anonymous and because the Q is a reference to a security clearance level, which was supposed to suggest that the Q person was from inside the administration. Now the movement is looking around for someone else who can replace both the Q poster and Trump, who seems to have abandoned his people when the storm didn't take place after the Stop the Steel march. Michael Flynn is one of the favoured candidates, and he speaks at many rallies. He, of course, was quite instrumental in trying to persuade Trump to deploy the military in order to overturn the election in a number of states. And he's somewhat dangerous because of his extensive military experience. He was an intelligence officer, so he knows a great deal about how information spreads. But then there are these local leaders, right? So many congressional candidates have been or are being elected on the back of their involvement or their claims to be part of this movement. Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of them. Lauren Boebert is another. These people are in favor of gun rights, absolutist free speech. Some of them disavow their connections with QAnon when they do get elected, but they're part of the overall same goal, which is to further the power of white people in in the United States. I'd like to go back to that question. I think you raised it, Ruth, about the question of truth is different for different groups. And that's always worries me (laughs) when with, with that sort of remark, because if nothing's true, then everything's possible. 
what I mean when I say that truth is different for different people is that many people sincerely hold beliefs that have only some basis in fact. But it's very hard to say what are universal facts because truth is complicated and nuanced. And the old adage or the journalistic adage is that fact checking only works for simple lies. But these are much more complex and centuries long ideas that have particular historical roots as we've been discussing. And so the key is to focus on those things that we could say are universal truths. And they include some things about the human condition that you were referencing, Ed, which to me means the desire for flourishing, to do well, to have community, to be loved, that when we come together, better outcomes can arise, and that we probably should be suspicious of overly concentrated power, whether that's in the hands of capitalists or politicians or the state or anything else. So I like to think about it as trying to balance out those two things. Multiple truths, Alfred. I would, in this case, sort of avoid the register of truth a little bit. The great problem that we face when we're dealing with the apparently extreme, radicalized sort of beliefs, the threat we face is one to how we live together, how we live together peacefully, and how we can flourish collectively in the midst of radical difference. And the question for me is how we sort of engage with one another across these kinds of differences in ways that enable us to treat one another with respect and to listen to one another And I think the register of truth can sometimes push against that if it is crudely interpreted as fact-checking, people being misled, people being dupes, people lying, because those things are obviously true. They're possible. They can happen. But it isn't a way of opening up conversations across difference. And I think that's where we need to focus more positively is how do we open up conversations across difference with those who share radical, extremely distasteful attitudes, racism and so on, how do we treat them not as enemies, ultimately, because there's a risk that you can crystallize and make rigid these sorts of divisions by the way that we talk about them and the way that we try to engage across the problem we face is how do we try to engage across difference without making the kinds of beliefs we have even more deeply embedded and even more antagonistic. And it's very difficult when you're faced with an antagonistic other, but I think that's the challenge. Truth sounds like a good subject for another episode of Naked Reflections. One thing I am certain of, however, is that we've reached the end of this podcast. Thanks to my guests, Ruth Lawler and Alfred Moore, and many thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you might want to browse our archive of podcasts, which includes that edition about the American election that I mentioned at the top of the show. Plenty of insights there and elsewhere. Feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more guests. (laughs) 